Let's turn to Romans 1 for the third time. This is our introduction, uh, still kind of an introductory phase of a new series, which we're entitling Better Call Paul, for reasons that I explained on our first message, and that will become more and more apparent as we continue in this new series, in which we're going to be tackling quite a bit of Romans, and, but all of Paul. And it's going to be the most important series, I think, that we've ever entertained here at Tedelestai Church, and also known as, by its new name, Shiloh, thanks to Ricky Martin. And he gave me a verse last night that's astonishing, really, First Samuel 3.21, where Samuel taught at Shiloh, and it says, God, Yahweh, continued to appear and made himself known, as Samuel preached, made himself known through the word. And Shiloh, of course, is also a name for the Messiah. It's called the Man of Peace. And what a privilege it is to be where everyone demands a safe space in this world. We have a sacred space. This space is made sacred by your presence in Christ by Christ's presence in you, and by our single-minded determination to gather here in the name of Jesus Christ as part of his community in an attitude of worship and high regard for our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry I didn't send you those verses. There is 1 Corinthians 15:22, but I'm sure Pastor Stewart got that to you uh, among those verses. And what a, a great enterprise that is. And the... It's, it's a great thing. So you can sign up if you're a lady. I know some of you men want to come to this, but you, you're not allowed. And Because uh, I tried. I tried to break in tonight. And then I found out there was no refreshments. So I'd be... Well, maybe there is. But our study, Better Call Paul. And that will be our study for an indefinite period of time. And it begins in tonight, which is the 38th anniversary of the ministry of our church here tonight. I flew down here in 1978 by the courtesy of Dave Tom, our first contact in Indiana, PA, who still comes to church. And he had a favor that was owed to him by a friend. And so we were, five of us were flown down from Massachusetts to Pittsburgh. And then on the 18th of November, I did my first speaking engagement, a 10-minute message at IUP in the hallway there in the midst of some ministers who weren't really glad to have us in town. And so the tradition continues. But on this occasion, better call Paul. I explained this before by a couple of secular ideas. First of all, for some of you who watch television, there was a famous series for a few years called Breaking Bad, which to me is a good way to explain the Adamic ontology. But Breaking Bad was about two gentlemen, uh, suffice it to say not gentlemen, but two men who had a meth lab, and they became quite successful in all the complications that goes with such a disastrous endeavor. But whenever they got into legal trouble, they called somebody named Saul. You better call Saul. He was a defense attorney and kind of sleazy. 
So it was called Better Call Saul. And I was thinking about that as I was reading through that doorstopper of a book by Douglas Campbell called The Deliverance of God, which so bizarrely is called an apocalyptic reading of Paul. I mean, that's what we said at the end of Revelation. I hadn't even considered that, but I said, can Paul be read apocalyptically? And that was our transition into Revelation, and that's what his title of his book is, The Deliverance of God, Paul Read Apocalyptically. And so, Better Call Paul kind of dawned on me as something that I can call this series, because we're not going to just deal with Romans alone, but all of Paul, and Paul read apocalyptically. Better Call Paul isn't just from the standpoint of humanity, where many of the epistles arose from an occasion or a circumstance or even a crisis, where the leadership of the local churches might have even said, we better call Paul. But from the standpoint of divinity and the triune God, I think the triune God got together and said, how will we express our unconditional grace and uh, a salvation which doesn't involve any conditions on the part of man? How can we, who can we select? Maybe the worst of all sinners, maybe the persecutor who persecutes Jesus himself in the church. How can we demonstrate this unconditional grace and, listen carefully, a salvation without conditions through the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? And the triune God decided altogether, better call Paul. And that's exactly what happened. Paul was called. And to read Paul apocalyptically which we're doing, especially in Romans, and we're going to really tackle Romans. Apocalyptically, by that I mean revelatory, a revelation of God in Christ. And here's the shock to the system. And I'm trying to develop these controlling themes before we expound on Romans. Romans is going to be expounded under five or six controlling themes. And the controlling theme that's major in this is, of course, Christocentricity. This is a radically Christocentric reading of Paul and Paul's writings. Just as Paul says in Galatians 1.12, this gospel was not given to me by men, but by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalyptically means an unconditional soteriology. Now, you know soteriology. It comes from soter. In the Greek, never mind, I, I, I haven't been here for a while, so S-O-T-E-R, soter, and the study of self, salvation is soteriology. So when you have soteriology, you're talking about salvation. When you have an unconditional soteriology, which Paul announces in his gospel, there is no condition to be met by mankind for salvation. Now, here's the shock to the system. This means justification In Romans and Galatians, and oddly enough, it's not really dealt with in Ephesians or Colossians, which Paul also wrote, I emphatically will state. Justification is not a legal imputation of righteousness given on the condition of faith. Justification is an unconditional deliverance which brings a person under sin into Christ by an event of grace, which to them is the apocalyptic moment of their life. 
And this was something that really began to dawn on me a long time ago when I thought, why, if Romans 1 through 4 is talking about this whole thing about getting under the law and then not being able to fulfill the law, so God makes a lower, lowers the bar and says, all you've got to do is believe, and you're justified by faith, and you're given an imputed righteousness by faith. How come that isn't what happened to Paul, who's the author of this thing? And the answer is forthcoming. And again, this is another controlling theme. Romans is a throughout, most of it, especially Romans 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8, is what I call a dialectic of, dialectic of contradictories. There's two kinds of dialectics, which is kind of an argument or a debate, friendly debate or sometimes unfriendly. A dialectic of contraries means that one person holds a position, another person holds a counterposition. And through an entertainment of reflection and argumentation, a middle term is reached where there's a kind of conciliation between the two contraries. There's another kind of dialectic, however, called a dialectic of contradictories in which there are two irreconcilable positions and no reconciliation between those positions. What's clear to me and has been, this has been kind of intuitively brewing in me for 20 or 30 years just by certain questions and is now made eminently clear by the controversial study by Douglas Campbell called The Deliverance of God, which I did finish, and it's a doorstopper of a book and a tradition stomper of a book. Two reasons why I like it. You can stop your door with it because it's, if you hit somebody with it, it you could hurt them badly. And it's also a tradition stomper. There's a conventional reading of Romans. And it has been around since the Reformation. And you can't blame Luther for it because Luther was not really the author of this justification theory. Neither was Calvin. Calvin and Luther, you can find places in their writings, especially late in Luther and throughout Calvin, they both believed, or Luther believed very strongly in a universal salvation, but he didn't begin to express it until he was older, until he had some confrontations with the Lord himself. So he's not to be blamed for this, but the conventional reading is that Romans is bringing about salvation through the law which can't be kept by man. And it begins with man looking up into the sky and having a realization that God created it. But what we found and what Campbell brought forth, most controversially, but I agree with this, and I even bought a book that countered his book, and he replied to, the, to that, is that Romans 1.18 to 32, to start with, here's the first shock to the system, was not Paul writing. It was a block speech, a parody speech of a Turner Burn message by a teacher that Paul was withstanding in Rome. And this teacher was a Jewish Christian. When Paul was generous some days, he called him a Christian. But it, it presented a viewpoint largely from a book that's not canonical, The Wisdom of Solomon. You'll find Christ rarely mentioned in the, re, in the reasoning of this man. In fact, this teacher, if you punctuate Romans, you find that his argument and his antithetical gospel, his irreconcilable other gospel than Paul's, is found throughout Romans 1 through 4. And you actually see a dialogue between Paul and this other teacher. And so Romans 5 through 8 
becomes Paul's revelatory gospel. It begins with Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith. Now, there's the catch, because it seems like he's talking about our responsibility there is faith. But faith there refers all the way back to Romans 1.17, where in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And the faithfulness belongs to Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is his obedience to the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion, whereby God has also highly exalted him, resurrected him, and exalted him. In Romans 4.25, Paul makes the point, after he totally discredits this other teacher and his false gospel, by Romans 3.20, when he says, all the world is silenced before God, and then he hits Romans 3.21 to 26, that's Paul's very clear voice. A righteousness from God is revealed apart from the law and is upon all those of faith. But again, we're not, and here's the shocker, we're not dealing with the faith that appropriates justification on the part of man, but a faithfulness that is gifted to man and a participation in Christ's own faithfulness. His faithfulness is a metonymy for his obedience to the death of the cross. In Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses, the trespasses of the whole world, and he was raised up for our justification. Therefore, Romans 5.1, where Paul begins his rendition of an unconditional soteriology, being justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is his resurrection... We have peace with God. So the salvation event is not me believing and appropriating salvation. It's me being gifted with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in an unconditional event of grace. You say, well, what do I do now to preach the gospel if I don't say believe? Paul didn't say believe. He said this is the gospel. How that according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead. On the third day. That's what you tell people. And God will either create faith in them then or create faith in them some other time. And so we're going to explain a lot of these things. These are controlling themes. Paul is read apocalyptically. And therefore, there is another gospel, another gospel that cannot be reconciled to Paul's unconditional soteriology which is totally dismantled in the book of Romans. And we're going to make that very clear, exactly where this teacher appears, where he emerges from the shadows, what he says, and how Paul replies against him. And so the whole idea of justification, therefore, must be perceived not as a legal imputation of righteousness to a sinner, but as the the gift or the deliverance of God that is an unconditional expression of God's grace. Furthermore, dikaiosune or righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Righteousness by the context of where this is found in Psalm 98, 1 to 3, as well as Psalm 97 in the LXX. The righteousness of God is not his justice, The righteousness of God is the saving act of God in Christ. 
the righteous act of God rescuing humanity. That's the righteousness of God. That is what is being apocalypto, revealed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who has faith. That means once you're gifted with faith, you look back and say, wow, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the the people outside of that don't know that. Yet, they will know it. We have begun to realize through a glass darkly the universality of the impact of Jesus Christ's salvation. We will see it in totality in the moment of the eschaton when he comes and is fully revealed. But so will all the world. All the world will begin to realize and will realize suddenly and shockingly, salvifically, what we have already begun to realize and see through a glass darkly and what we have yet to see in all of its fullness. That's what Paul taught when he's talking in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. Now we see through a glass darkly. So the controlling theme that I'm going to be using as I go verse by verse through Romans or generally verse by verse is that it's an apocalyptic reading. That's already established as far as I'm concerned. An unconditional soteriology. After all, Paul received his gospel by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so what I would say about that is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which Paul had, is a revelation of Jesus Christ as divine and as the representative of all the human race. So that when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, so was all of humanity, without exception. And so was all creation, without exception. This is a Christocentric gospel. And this puts to shame people who throw around the term Christocentricity. You find out, as I did, shocked to the system, that much of what we have adopted from Romans is actually what this false teacher said. Romans 1.18 to 32 is a turn or burn message that Paul had nothing to do with. And that he was mocking and parodying. And it was probably performed, you don't see her name until Romans 16, Phoebe. Phoebe brings this epistle to Rome. Paul is on his way to Spain. He's also gathering a collection for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Spain. He's going to pass through Rome. So he writes this epistle to people that have been aware of what his gospel is but may not be totally familiar with it, but who have also been taught by a celebrity teacher who was a Jewish Christian, a famous one, And Paul seems to confront either this person or someone like him in Galatians, where he said, whoever this man is who troubles you, he's going to have to deal with me, you see. Whoever this is, if anyone brings another gospel and all the rest of it, another gospel which he says doesn't even deserve the title of another. And that is something we see in Galatians, obviously, but in Romans a lot more subtly. But once you see it, it's absolutely stunning. Because when the false teacher emerges from the shadows, you actually, what I did was say, wow, I've adopted this belief and it's not Paul. I better call Paul. Hey, Paul, Paul's number is 555, grace, 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 5555, grace, 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 grace. Hey, Paul, what did, what's this about? Paul said, I didn't say that. I was parodying and I had Phoebe perform this epistle in which she would perform it in a way that everyone would get the point by the nuances and the whole volume of the thing. 
the wrath of God is being revealed, which is totally contrary to what Paul said in 117. The righteousness of God is being revealed. No, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's obvious that there's a break. Paul has finished his introduction by 117. 118 to 32 is this other guy. Paul comes in in Romans 2, 1 and says, but then you are also without excuse. And then this other guy goes in. You've read it, haven't you? Haven't you read Romans where it says outrightly and you think Paul's saying it. Those who do good, those who keep practicing good will find glory and honor and all the rest of it. And those who perform evil will have tribulation and anguish and terror. That's not Paul. Paul comes in only in a small part in 2.16 and he says, all the thoughts, this other guy's preaching with his hellfire and brimstone. And he says, all the thoughts of men will one day be judged in a day of retributive wrath. And Paul says, but according to my gospel, it'll be according to Jesus Christ, not anything else. When you get finished with Romans, we're going to find out there is no future day of violent retributive justice from God on anybody, angelic or human. This will give you an eschatological assurance. But here's the, another kicker. You think that if Paul wasn't the guy that talks all the, says all these bad things about people who gossip and are homosexuals and they do all this stuff, that's not Paul. Then you say, well, then does Paul have any ethics? And I answer, overwhelmingly he does. Paul preaches an ethical efficacy that does not come from human capacity that starts by recognizing God in creation, then makes another step and another step and another step because Paul says man isn't even capacitated to recognize God by some natural theology. That's what I'll call nat theo. Not, it's not possible. Therefore, God doesn't even hold man accountable and say to him, well, I created the universe and you don't see my invisible attributes and power in there, so to hell with you. God doesn't do that. That's not Paul. Paul's not talking there. But what Paul is saying is that this system of this other gospel and the traditional reading of Romans doesn't have ethical efficacy. In other words, it doesn't make you effective in obedience to the commandments of God, which are required of us after salvation. But what does is a participation in Christ, whereby you say, my history is his history. I was crucified with Christ. Reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed unto sin, sin as a power, and alive to God. And so there is a, there's an ethical efficacy that is only for those in Christ that Paul deals with from Romans 6, 1, all the way to 8, 13, because you begin to say, well, Paul must be teaching, go out and do evil that good may come if he's not the one that said all these things about homosexuals and gossips and murderers. And people know that these things are going to end up in death, but they still do them and they applaud those that do them. That's not Paul's sermon. That's a sermon based on the wisdom of Solomon, another book extant in the time, written around 45 AD, not in the canon, but in the, apocalypse, uh, in the Apocrypha. And it's astonishing how much of Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 especially doesn't involve Christ at all. It's not Christocentric, it's anthropocentric. 
It involves man having ethical capacity when Paul says man has no ethical capacity. That's what we call depravity. Man, God doesn't hold man responsible in the way that this other gospel says. And so Paul is a perfect example of someone who was dead set against Jesus Christ. Jesus said, why do you persecute me personally? He was dead set against Jesus Christ. He didn't go through the whole program of I can't live up to the law. In fact, he said, I lived up to the law perfectly. He didn't go through that whole thing that you're supposed to go through like some of the people that the reformers have taught. Well, you've got to go to this terrible psychological crisis and you come down so low and you realize you can't keep the law and you thank God, God's given you a lower thing to do, which is just believe in Jesus. And you're justified by faith. Man, do I hate to announce this early, but I'm going for the throat in the first few messages. That's not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is an unconditional soteriology, a revelation of God's act in Jesus Christ, which you need not be ashamed of because it is a picture of Jesus Christ, not only in his universal saving significance, but in his unconditional saving significance. So USSJC will have to make unconditional saving significance of Jesus Christ. So I would say to read apocalyptically means that what we're looking at is a revelation of Jesus Christ as divine, as a representative of all the human race, and Jesus Christ revealed or disclosed or unveiled in his unconditional universal saving significance. So I believe that Paul's gospel, I know I called him up, reveals an unconditional soteriology, and as such, listen carefully, listen carefully, some of you are going to get mad again at me, but that's my job. Make you mad, proclaim things that are shocks to the system, and these are shocks to the system. And then I'll do the after-proclamation explanation. Some of the preachers that preached in my absence announced themselves, Professor Sadar, Pastor Messick, they announced themselves as if very proud of it. I am not Rick. And I announce to you, very humbly, I am Rick. And in this case, I'm Ricky Ricardo. Because I'm going to do a lot of proclaiming, and then I got a lot of explaining to do afterwards, explaining to do. Now, so... I believe that Paul's gospel reveals an unconditional soteriology and as such it does not put any condition on mankind, including faith alone. Whoa, for a person to be saved. Melanchthon came up with that. Sola fides became a kind of a mantra in the Reformation. Sola fides, sola fides. Only by faith, by faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. It isn't by faith alone. You're not justified by faith and rewarded with salvation with an imputed righteousness when you believe. You were transferred wholesale from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and your faith was given to you as a gifted participation with Jesus Christ's faithfulness. You were delivered by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not justified by faith. That's a justification theory. So what we're doing is fighting a battle on two fronts. One, a false gospel of a false teacher 
which is antithetical totally to Paul's gospel and can't be reconciled with Paul's gospel, but has to be shut down completely, demolished totally. And that's where Paul comes in with Romans 10.4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fragile and delicate like our human bodies. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, to the demolition of every vaunted high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. One thing that goes up against the knowledge of God, a very high spire, is the presentation of God as a God of retributive justice rather than a God whose name is and essence is love and therefore who is a God of unlimited benevolence. As Robin Perry said, if God's whole program is to call everything that he made back to himself because all things are by him, to him, through him, and to him, then if, as Augustine said, the majority of humanity is going to end up in an eternity in hell where God keeps them suffering forever as some kind of testimony to his justice means God's the big loser in his own program. And I thought he made a very good point of that. I might even have Jim cue that up for some night where we'll have it after service because it was one of the best renditions of universalism I've ever heard, and it's from Robin Perry. The second thing, then, a controlling theme, is covenant versus contract. Some of you have read up on this recently. God doesn't have a contract with man. A contract is a bilateral agreement. It is do this, and I will do this for you. A covenant is what God has with all flesh, as well as with his people, as well as with Israel. A covenant is a unilateral agreement where God unconditionally announces that he will do such and such a thing. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And it's therefore undergirds an unconditional soteriology. God does require faithfulness of his people under that covenant. But our faithfulness is a shared participation with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The whole text verse that Paul brings forth from the prophets for the book of Romans is one seventeen. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one shall live by faith. And that means that the righteous one is Jesus Christ who lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness. The only person ever so-called rewarded with life through faithfulness was Jesus Christ. The righteous one is Jesus Christ, not you or me living by faith. The righteous one is Christ who lived by faithfulness and by his faithful obedience till the death of the cross, was then raised from the dead. So the whole cross comes into a different viewpoint now. The cross was once viewed by many of us as the way that God protected man from himself. And that's not what the cross is all about at all. It isn't a wrathful God protecting people in humanity from his wrath by pouring it out on Jesus Christ instead as if God is a God of retributive justice and vengeance and has to do that. That's not what the cross is about, so we're going to hit that too. So under, after covenant versus contract, faith is a gifted participation of the saint in the fidelity of Jesus Christ, and that faithfulness works by love. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't avail anything. What works is a faith or a faithfulness that works by love. Love. So faith, by its very definition, 
is not the means to secure justification as if it's a forensic or judicial imputation. Faith is a gifted participation with Christ's own faithfulness that is granted to you. So faith is always a gift. For by grace you are saved. Grace is the unconditional soteriology of God. Through faith. Through what? Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that not of yourselves. If it was through faith, it would be of yourselves because you're the one doing the believing. But it's by grace you are saved eternally with security through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Paul establishes that early in Romans that what he means by faith, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He means the righteousness of God, which is his saving act in Christ, is revealed from faithfulness, Christ's own faithfulness in his death in the cross, to faithfulness, which is our participation in Christ's own faithfulness. That's how God's righteousness, his righteousness can't be seen as justice. Because as Richard Hayes told Douglas Campbell one day, Psalm 98 figures prominently here. And this is all introductory stuff. I'm preaching now. Don't hold that against me. I am Rick. I am a preacher, but don't hold that against me. That's my calling card. And people say, what do you do? And I go, oh, here we go. And I'm in the pool in Florida, and there's start, you know, all these old folks down there. Who are, they call them Q-tips. And I said, don't call us Q-tips. I'm one of those now. But uh, so one of the Q-tips says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me. And one guy actually said, oh, I won't. Like I, I said, okay, and I said, that doesn't mean I'm going to be starting a Bible study here with Clint Eastwood's voice. So, but any, in any case, I'm preaching this now and proclaiming. There's going to be a lot of proclamation, a lot of preaching, and then a little bit of explanation. The preaching of the gospel is the presentation of the facts of Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. We don't have to urge anything beyond this point. For the gospel itself elicits faith. And the gospel itself says be reconciled to God. Why? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So what happened at the cross? God reconciled the world to himself. What happened at the cross already? God reconciled the world to himself. What happened at the cross? God reconciled the world to himself. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him or whoever has faith in him has eternal life or the life of the coming age now. But again, that faith is not the means of securing the justification. It's a shared participation with Christ. The hearing of the message about Christ brings about faith. Faith is always a gift. In Titus 3, 7, we're justified or delivered by grace. Justification has to be taken out of the legal contract language and brought into a covenant. Because again, Psalm 98, which is even better seen as you see the balance of it and the, the mirror image of it in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the righteousness of God is seen as an act of a king to rescue his people. 
the act of a king who has the authority and the power to do so rescues his people. That's a righteous act. Jesus Christ is seen as the king, the king of kings. God the Father is a king. Jesus Christ is his earthly representative, the king, God, and his earthly representative, the Christ, the anointed one. The righteousness of God is not a legal righteousness. It has to be taken out of the contract language and brought into the covenant. What God has done, his righteousness is his saving act in Christ, which is an unconditional saving act to rescue his people, which is the righteous act of the king. So the righteousness of God is being revealed, apocalypto, from faith to faith in the gospel, from faithfulness, Christ. It announces Christ's faithfulness, not man's faith. It isn't an anthropocentric announcement of good news. It's a Christocentric announcement of good news. And everywhere you see the word pistis Christu, you don't view it as faith in Christ, our faith in Christ, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And again, powerfully, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He didn't say, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I recognized him. I believed in him, and he imputed righteousness to me. No. He just said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God because if this deliverance came by works, then Christ died for nothing. And one of the works is our belief in him. We're not saved by works that we have done. But of course, according to his mercy, he saved us. By grace, you have been delivered. All sinned. And come short of the glory of God, says Paul, when he finally gets, his, gets the microphone, takes the mic away from the false preacher. And he says, now a righteousness from God is revealed apart from the law, which is upon all those of faith. For all sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You don't add faith to that because Romans 5.1, where Paul really starts to open up on his apocalyptic gospel and the eschatological assurance of it and the mind-bending grace and mercy of it, by saying Romans 5.1 says, see, there it says justified by faith, but it's not faith. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which came by his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, being delivered, not imputed a judicial righteousness. When God saves you, he doesn't impute something to you and let you remain sinful. He transforms you by a participation with Jesus Christ and then enables you through the spirit within to live a life that's pleasing to God through this shared participation. So, before we go any further, let's hit Romans 1 just for a moment. Romans, I've hit this, this the third time now. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we have to notice is that word slave, doulos, means an imperial slave because Jesus Christ is going to be hailed as the king, the Davidic king. 
born according to the flesh through the seed of David. Therefore, he is the king. God acting in his human representative presents an act of righteousness. And it's through this one act of righteousness that all people receive life-giving justification. And so it's not just a legal thing. It's life received in an act of divine deliverance. And I'm so delighted that this happened because in 1972, on January 23rd, I realized something. In the dead of winter in Vermont, in the depth of depression, in my case, that's not the, that doesn't have to be the, the paradigm. This is another shock to the system. I'm going to hit, him with the, hit, hit you with it right from the beginning. Romans 4, so often touted as Abraham being a paradigm for justification by faith, is not what Paul is saying there. Paul's going to dismantle that whole di- idea of Abraham believing God, and it was credited to him for righteousness as the paradigm or the pattern for how people get saved. Paul wasn't saved by that pattern. And that is not the pattern that Paul's gospel puts forth. So we're going to hit, there's another shock to the system. Now I stand before you as one that's already received all these shocks. It's like sitting in the electric chair, but I'm alive. I survived them. 60 hours of reading, apart from you, my phone kind of far in the distance, bing, shock. Three hours more reading, shock, shock. And I began to say to the Lord, I like it. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. There's our title, Better Call Paul. Paul called as an apostle, set apart. To the gospel of God. Here's another question I'm asking. Is the gospel all about Jesus? Is the gospel truly Christocentric? Or is it somewhat about you? Is it about mankind? Is it about people? Is it about people's goodness? Is it about people's capacity? Do people have an ethical capacity? Does God hold them responsible to recognize his design and creation? As the first step towards salvation... And if they keep taking those good ethically capacitated steps, I will reward them with justification. Are we so messed up we couldn't recognize God if he stood before us enthroned in creation? I'm just telling you, man can't do theology outside of Christ. Man can't do theology outside of Christ. Paul's whole view is a retrospective. He gets slammed out from sin into Christ, out from condemnation into Christ. From Christ, he looks back and says, wow, look what I've been saved from. Look what you've been saved from. And so he has a retrospective view. In my case, I remember being delivered gloriously, and I didn't even know how to interpret it. And then God's saying, after that, have a deep and abiding faith. And I said, well, I can never give that testimony in the two affiliations I was with, with before because they wouldn't say, they'd say it was invalid. You're not really saved. Because you're saying God delivered you by an act of his grace unconditionally and then gave you faith. That's exactly what I'm saying. So I embody this gospel in my own personal life. I embody this gospel. So it doesn't take courage for me to preach it. It's what happened to me. 
Faith, I finally realized, is the gift that he gave. It was like, here's, have a piece of cake. But this cake you're going to love forever, and you'll never gain weight from it. And you'll never get ill effects from it, and you'll never get, take the breath away from you at night because you can't breathe because you ate so much sugar that night, that day. It's not going to happen to you. In fact, it's better not to eat any of that stuff at all. But have a deep and abiding faith. What am I supposed to do with it? Participate in Christ with it. That's all. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets. One of the key verses in which he announces gospel through the prophets is Habakkuk 2.4, quoted in Romans 1.17. My righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. My righteous one is Jesus Christ. He lives because of his faithfulness. And if God is going to comprise all people in Christ, which is the mystery of Paul, then when Christ was resurrected from the dead as a reward for his fidelity, the whole human race was resurrected from the dead as the reward for Christ's fidelity. Not yours. Now, it's natural to people, well, you know, if you do something good, you should be rewarded for it. So there's a whole system of rewards that we're going to shock the shock to the system is going to, because this whole idea of, well, you know, my grandmother was such a sweet lady, boy, did she deserve heaven. No, she didn't. Deserve's got nothing to do with it. Dessert has nothing to do with it. Is the gospel all about Jesus Christ? Look at verse 3, about his son, Perry. His son, P-E-R-I, which means all about his son. Already, Paul's saying the gospel is all about God's son. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, then the son, in the telos, in the final end of all things, the son will submit himself to the father and in him all the creation that he has redeemed so that God will be all in all. That's the son, the son of God who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Therefore, he's the king, the Davidic king, Messiah, and designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. This same spirit of sanctification is the one who, in the Old Testament, sanctified prophets, sanctified priests, and sanctified kings. By his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sanctification, raised him from the dead, and therefore set him apart as the king of kings. And it's this king, by his righteous act of saving grace, that his righteousness is revealed. Psalm 98 goes on to explain, as I said last night, why does Psalm 98 says, let all the world rejoice that God is coming to judge the earth? He's coming to judge the earth, so rejoice. Yeah, because God's judgment is the saving act of his grace. So the whole world should rejoice that God's going to come and set things right by a rescuing act, by a restoration act. But notice how it goes on in verse 5. Through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the faithful obedience in all the nations, in all the nations, on behalf of his name. So what does Paul see himself doing? Paul, yes, 
Is this you? Yes. Are you sure it's not somebody imitating you? No, it's me. What did you see yourself doing? Well, I see myself as bringing about a participation with Christ's own faithful obedience by all the nations. That was my call. All the nations, a phrase that's familiar to us from our excursion through Revelation, of course. And again, as I quoted before, Psalm 22, 27 to 28 rings in here as a tremendous showcase of the ultimate success of Paul's apostleship. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will now bow down before you. For kingship, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. So there's an inclusio in Romans with regard to this theme that Paul was called to bring about faithful obedience in all the nations. In other words, he foresees all the nations participating in Jesus Christ's faithfulness as a result of the proclamation of this gospel. But in Romans 15, look at it for a moment. In Romans 15, we, the end of the body of Paul's epistle is Romans 15, 13. That's the end of the body of the epistle. Where Paul says he wishes them peace and joy in the believing, which is in the participation in Christ's faithfulness. He wishes them that and wishes you that. But after that, he also talks about how they were full of goodness and kindness and able to counsel. But then he says, and this is an inclusio with Romans 1.5, he says, I have written to you in 15.15, my translation, I have written to you quite boldly to emphasize some points through the grace that was given to me. You know what I just did in this message, in the past two messages, Sunday, Wednesday, and tonight? Proclaim somewhat boldly certain points about the grace of God, not the least of which an apocalyptic reading of Paul is a picture of an unconditional soteriology in Christ. I have written some things, he says, through the grace that was given to me by God. That goes back to the grace and the apostleship which Paul received from Jesus Christ in Romans 1.5. Now, God really dropped the ball here because he didn't vet Paul. Paul wasn't vetted. He was the persecutor of Jesus Christ, the worst sinner that ever lived, and God called him to be an apostle. Well, Paul later said, God considered me faithful. So he called me by his mercy. We'll explain what that means. To be a minister, he says, of Messiah Jesus to the nations. We can say this is the pagans the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This, again, goes back to Romans 1.5, his apostleship. In Romans 12.3, according to the authority given to me, I say to all of you not to be arrogant. Arrogance is the assumption of this other gospel. And then he says again in 15, 15 to 16, to be a minister of Messiah Jesus to the nations, serving as a priest of God's gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles or the pagans or the nations may be acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The same spirit of sanctification who raised Jesus from the dead raises the nations from the dead to be a kingdom of priests, along with Israel. So this offering, which Paul speaks of himself as a priest to offer 
these pagan nations to God. This offering includes the recipients of Paul's epistle, which we call by abbreviation Romans. So one six says this, including you who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. To belong to Jesus Christ is to be of the faithfully obedient one. It is to be of the righteous one. It is to be of the one who has come to life via resurrection because of his fidelity. In Habakkuk 2.4, as found in Romans 1.17. So let's jump quickly to Romans 1.16. This is according to the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. Look at 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who has faith. This, means, this doesn't mean that it's the power of God's salvation only if you believe. It means that once you've been shifted into Christ and given faith, you regard the gospel as what it is, the power of God for salvation. As Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.18, to those who are saved or those who are being saved and therefore participating in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the word of the cross means salvation. But to those who are, is the power of God. It's the power and wisdom of God. But to those who are perishing, that is still not yet shifted over into Christ, it's foolishness. So to those who have faith, those who God shifted into his son, And gave faith, we look back and say, wow, that gospel, that's the power of God for salvation. Not because I believed it. And Paul then goes on to say, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that he's coining a term made by this Jewish teacher, the Jew first. The Jew first. Paul never attacks the Jew as translations and tradition has done. Let me tell you how far tradition has misread Romans. It ended up in a Nazism in which it was perceived that Paul was speaking against the Jew. Paul wasn't speaking against the Jew. He was speaking against a Jew who was a famous, reputed teacher In Rome, Paul never spoke about the Jewish people in a negative light, and he never spoke of Judaism either as the Jewish religion in a false light. In fact, he saw that as a pedagogue for the Jews before Christ came. And so it was valuable in every way. So, what does it mean to belong to Christ by calling? Well, Romans 8.30 says... As many as he foreknew, God that is, those he also called. As many as he called, those he also delivered. Think of justification as deliverance, a deliverance performed by God. As man, or in as many as he delivered, he also glorified. So to belong to Jesus Christ is to be of the faithfully obedient one. So in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who has faith, that is, to everyone who participates in the fidelity of the righteous, Christ, the righteous one, Christ, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the dikaiosune, define that as the saving act of God in Christ. Confer with Psalm 98 or Psalm 97 in the LXX. For in it, the righteous, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed, apocalypto, from faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness, to 
participation by the saints in Christ's faithfulness. In other words, from Christ's faithfulness to a participation in that faithfulness by the people of God whom he unconditionally saves. A salvation that's going to come to all human beings, some of whom will experience it after bodily resurrection from the dead. Blessed are you who have already been raised from the dead, as it were. So, the righteousness of God or the saving act of God in Christ is being unveiled from faithfulness to faithfulness. Just as it is written, the righteous one, Christ, not the believer or the man or anyone of mankind. This is a Christocentric gospel, not an anthropocentric gospel. The righteous one, Christ, will live because of his fidelity. The person who was saved was Jesus Christ. God saved him from the horrible plight of death and raised him from the dead. And Christ made the decision. You want to have decision enter into this? It doesn't. If salvation depended upon your decision, no one would ever be saved. And certainly not all would ever be saved. That's an arrogance on the part of man. Paul says, by the grace of God given to me, I say to you, stop being arrogant and thinking that your will and your choices have something to do with this. Jesus Christ made the choice for your salvation and said yes to God for you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, not my will, speaking as all mankind, but yours be done, and God the Father's will is to save all humanity. He is the savior of all mankind. His will is to save all humanity. So Jesus Christ made the decision for your salvation. You don't make it when you come down an altar and make a confession. You don't make it when you believe unto a justification or imputation of righteousness. You don't make it because some preacher preaches and makes you say a sinner's prayer. Jesus Christ made the decision for your salvation. And demonstrated that through his faithfulness to death and then his resurrection. So when he was raised and saved from the death, and he even said to the Father, Save your darling from the power of the lion, from the jaws of the lion, from this death. God did save his darling, his righteous faithful one. He gave life to him. And when he gave life to him, he gave life to you and me and every other human being and all of creation. Eternal life. Now that realization has been inaugurated in you. If you have faith, you've been given it. And if you have faith, you see through a glass darkly this universally saving Savior. And one day you'll see face to face. And one day all the world of all humanity and all the times of man's history will see Christ face to face and be transformed into his image and realize what's already been done which you realize and I realize obscurely through a glass darkly as we come together each time we come together we grow in grace we see a little clearer We gaze as in a glass at the glory of the Lord and we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we gaze. And it becomes more and more clear to us. But when he comes and every eye sees him, 
Every person will be conformed into his image. Because God foreknew all mankind, called all mankind, delivered all mankind, glorifies all mankind. And to be glorified is to finally become truly and fully human. There's only one person so far who's truly and fully human. It's Jesus. And because of his gracious act, we will all one day be truly, fully human through bodily resurrection from the dead. You can't even believe, and I can't even believe it. I can't, it's, to me, it's almost unspeakable, the life that we have ahead of us in glorification. It's, it's beyond what you can... We think of each other, well, so-and-so's up there talking to so-and-so. You have no... We have no idea what's going on. That may be happening, but it's happening on such a level that you and I can't even begin to imagine. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has it ever entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Which is why unbeliever and believer alike often on their deathbed see a glory that they're about to enter and are in awe because of it. And that's all I'll say tonight. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather in this sacred space because there's really no safe space in this world. But there is a sacred space in Christ Jesus in this world. And we thank you for being in this sacred place with people whom you have liberated, saved, delivered, given faith to in order to participate in Jesus Christ. Help us to see a gospel that's all about Jesus. Help us to see a gospel in which there's a transformation and an ethical efficacy that puts to shame the accusers who say that this gospel is the license to sin. May this message resonate over and over again in the coming years, in the hearts and minds of believers in Jesus Christ, as we have begun to discover in our time of history an unconditional Savior, a universal Savior, manifested apocalyptically in Paul. We've asked the question, is Paul's writings in toto an apocalypse? We're already saying, yes, it is. And we will expound upon this under these controlling themes. Thank you, Father, that you have transferred us out of the kingdom and the tyranny of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son, who is our King. May the righteousness of God be manifested and unfold and unveiled through our gathering together. And may that righteousness be seen as the saving, unconditionally saving act of God in Christ. I will boldly say unconditionally, universally saving act of God in Christ because only that qualifies as good news. Only that and nothing else qualifies as being called the gospel of God all about his Son, and we thank you for the opportunity of offering